our season on racism and anti-racism in schools, we have Dr. Virginia Mapet-Sahama and Rafiq Tanios joining me in this episode on structural racism. Those of you who've been listening to the Hints for Healing podcast for a while will remember Rafiq from Season 1, Episode 9. Rafiq is a school liaison officer at Starts and has over 25 years of direct experience working locally and internationally in the roles of educator, counsellor, welfare worker and filmmaker with culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Dr. Virginia Mapet-Sahama is joining us today representing the charity African Women Australia. She identifies as a first-generation Black African migrant and holds a PhD in sociology from the University of South Australia and a master's degree in social work from the University of Sydney. Virginia's research interest is in understanding the social construction of all categories of difference. This interest is fueled by her own experiences of racism, racialization, racial discrimination, and intersexual harms as a racially marginalized person living in Australia. She's published extensively in the areas of race, racism, migration, diaspora, blackness and black subjectivities, sexuality, hybridity, intersectionality and gendered violence. Good morning, Virginia and Rafiq, and welcome to the Hints for Healing podcast. Good morning, Nicole. It's uh, great to be here today. Lovely having you, Virginia, and welcome, Rafiq. Now, Virginia, um, you migrated to Australia as a young adult in the 1990s from Zimbabwe, and in addition to your lived experience of racism in Australia, you have a research background in the social construction of difference cross-cultural identities, gendered violence, and the African diaspora, amongst many other topics. And we've got Rafiq here as well today. So Rafiq, um, in addition to being extremely well-versed in the racial discrimination literature and having worked for decades with culturally and linguistically diverse young people, you also grew up in Australia after migrating from Egypt with your family when you were two. So we thought it would be really valuable to hear both of your insights on the topics around structural racism that we're discussing today. Um, So to get started, Virginia, we're going to be talking a lot about structural racism today. Um, And of course, Rafiq has already provided us um, earlier in the series a a a definition of structural racism in his introductory podcast. I'd also like to hear um, from you how you conceptualise structural racism. Thanks, Nicole. Um, well, I guess for me, when I hear, when I think of the term structural racism, I kind of think of like um, that entire kind of totality of like some of the ways in which um, I guess our society fosters um, racism and um, and it fosters race uh, racial discrimination. And I'm think I'm thinking, or I'm to- or talking more like the wider political. Um, and um, social disadvantage within society. So really talking about how those racial inequalities are reinforced through like various systems in our societies. So think of through like, I don't know, something as basic as housing systems, when you think of, of kind of those racial enclaves, 
um, any any system really, um, education, rates of poverty, you know, um, even if you think like things like um, COVID, in, um, in Australia, we don't have this um, race, like, statistics based on people's race because we don't take we don't take those um statistics but you think in places like the US and the UK you notice that they have higher de- um rates of death from covid-19 among people of color all of that really for me comes comes down to um structural discrimination structural racism which is really that totality of the ways in which society really foster or really kind of reproduce reproduces racism and so that it's actually embedded in the structures itself in the system I, I often talk about it's embedded in the way we do things around here right so the normal way that we that th- things function around here that we don't even kind of sit to think um that when we're doing things this way we're actually not being race neutral in fact that we're actually enforcing those um systems of um political and social disadvantage we're widening those gaps one of the things that I um, kind of obviously um, in my current, in my paid work job, so I'm here um, representing African Women Australia today, but in my paid, and that's my kind of passion work that I do within my community, but in my paid job, I work for an organization called um, uh, Diversity Council Australia, and um, they really um, like kind of workplace related, uh, workplace change agents. And so they look at employment and um, they've done, or they're doing quite a lot of work in terms of racism in employment. And when you look, look at some of the statistics that they give, um, that you find a lot of um, um, like in leadership roles, there's less people of color in Australia. It's, it's mostly white dominated. And it's really nothing new that they're coming up with. Um, the Australian Human Rights Commission released a report in 2018. And that report actually showed only five point, I think it was 5% or something like that, like five point something percent. It was a very low number of people in um, kind of leadership positions in like ASX 300 um, um, organizations or the most powerful organizations in Australia were actually a non-European and indigenous. So the rest, it's, which, which is kind of a really like, um, it doesn't align with the population in Australia where about what, more than 30% or around 30% of people are non-European and indigenous, and yet only 5% are in, in those roles. So all of that to me boils down to structural racism, which is, um, yeah, like I said, the, the ways in which society just reproduces those or widens those political, social, and economic gaps within society based on on race. And can you take us through some of these specific um, areas of Australian society that could contribute to stats like you mentioned there with the the low representation of CEOs? Um, so from education or what areas of our society are you seeing that? All of the areas. Like I, I actually, to me, it'd be like which area doesn't do that it's actually all of it um one of the things that i struggle a lot in australia is this thing of like we were once that um um society that we're kind of like a society built on racism right that's what colonization was colonization is um a race-based discriminatory process that's about to that's based on like racial inferiority and building like uh, uh, one race as superior and another as, in, as inferior and trying to wipe out that um, inferior race their whole like culture and whatnot and total domination right this is what Australia was 
And when you move from that system of race, like a system that's, when you build a system on racism, you can't just like turn a lift and come up with this new, this new thing called multiculturalism. And you're like, oh, look at us. We're all good now. It's like you actually have to work at decolonizing your structure. So it has to be like a deliberate thing that people kind of go, hold on. When we were actually um, creating these structures under colonization, we know that they were actually automatically disadvantaging particular particular groups of people. And what can we actually do to actually decolonize those structures? I believe that that process has never happened in Australia. We kind of turned the leaf and went to to multiculturalism and what we ended up with was really this system that's really built on a white supremacy. This might sound a bit like it's a bit out there, but when I'm talking about white supremacy, I'm not talking of a system that's like, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. I'm just talking about a system that's built on um, that racial, um, those racial hierarchies that places whiteness at the center or at, or at, the, uh, like, um, at the top of the hierarchy. So what we ended up with really is that we had this um, this system that um, was built on that, and then we kind of just turned this slave, and we had um, we, we we kind of superficially, right? To me, we superficially came up with this with these things. Political correctness came in, um, and we actually just said, "Oh yeah, we cannot talk about race because look at us, we're multicultural now. Race is a bad word in Australia. Let's not even use it." right? That's not decolonization. That's not decolonizing anything. We just kind of became politically correct. And then we just became very much and deeply like in denial of who we are when when it comes to race relations. So when you ask me the question of like, where is it in Australia? My answer is everywhere. When you read the work that I write, I always say race and racism, it's pervasive in Australian society. Like as a person who um, has been a race um, researcher for the last, I don't know, nearly 20 years or more, more than 20 years in Australia. I actually see race everywhere. I struggle. What I do is I actually um, consciously take off my race lens to not see it. So I actually have to blind myself to race to not actually see it because otherwise it's everywhere. So let me give you an example of something that's really topical in the news at the moment. I don't know. I'm sure if you know about it yesterday. Um, or the day before might have been, um, the Guardian released some audio tapes of um, um, that a, a, um, a former um, Queensland police officer or a former Queensland police employee released of officers that were really, really kind of this overt kind of racism. And they're so disturbing and so triggering for um, racial minorities in Australia. And if you haven't read it, it's, it's in the Guardian. Um, part of those are pros- um, that um, inquiry that's happening around the Queensland police at the moment, um, and the the way that the the people the people in the audio were talking about it, you will hear all of these there's there's this racial anxieties, there's this kind of um, it, it's all based on like incorrect information. And I remember I was talking to um, my colleagues yesterday and, and my family around this issue. And they were like, but it's, it's such incorrect information they're building on. And I said, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what's real and what's not real. The point is, these are the things that are circulating in Australia, these racial stereotypes that are leading to these racial anxieties that unfortunately are being picked up by law and order. And then that unfortunately has real consequences for people who actually are on the receiving end of those racial anxieties and racial 
um, stereotypes. So even in those places where you're like, it's law and order, right? I can go to the law as Virginia and I feel, I should feel comfortable. I don't because I know that those systems are um, just, they, they're just full of like these racial um, practices or these racist practices that are not even addressed. And in fact, that are perpetuated by the, um, by those very same structures, because the person who actually went to the Guardian said they'd exhausted all channels. And the final thing was like, I'm just going to go to the media, right? They've exhausted all channels. So that's that's an example of how just structurally embedded these things are. So if if these officers feel comfortable, really, it's ra- it's com- it's ra- racially safe space for them, right? Like when they feel like that we can talk about these things at work, it's racially safe space for them and they can say these things um, and the system doesn't do anything. And what would a, a decolonized space look like and what efforts need to be made in Australia for decolonization, do you think? Decolonization at the centre of it to me is anti-racism. It's a deliberate act to actually do that racial audit of our of our, um, our systems and our structures to see where the racial where the racial inequalities lie. Um, and just, so you take any policy, take take a look, anything, put a race lens on it. And so you're deliberately doing that. You're deliberately becoming an anti-racist um, society where you're you're kind of looking at how are these structures and how are these policies creating racial inequalities? How are they perpetuating racial hierarchies? How are they perpetuating racial stereotypes? Taking Virginia and putting her in a leadership position in an organization doesn't make you an anti-racist organization at all. It doesn't decolonize the, the, the structures within that organization. All you've done is you've taken a person who I call them chameleons, who can, or or people who white adjust so they can move in between, you know, like take off their blackness if there's someone like me, take off the blackness and then put on their whiteness and move in between. That's all you've done. You haven't done anything to the structures themselves. Doing something to the structures is a deliberate act of looking at what your policies and practices and procedures, what those are doing in relation to race. It's not simply because in Australia, we don't even do that, right? We like talking about culture. And I'm constantly talking to people. I'm like, I mean, do not come to me with culture, please. Because I get it. Culture is very important. And I'm not discounting it at all. It is something, it, it, there's some, all of these discriminations um, that are based on culture. But when someone sees me sitting on a bench um, waiting for a bus and they ask me, hey, where are you from? That's not culture. That's not my culture. I haven't said anything to them. I haven't done anything. Or if I'm standing in front of somebody trying to buy something and someone else cuts in front of me and they don't even say sorry, they don't even say excuse me, they don't even do anything, that's not my culture. Or I'm being followed around in, in shops or, you know, I don't I don't get a job. That's not my culture at all. Because actually, when you unpack, even as Virginia, I know I speak with a different accent, but I'm pretty sure your audience can hear my me well even when they listen. It's a different accent that's not Australian, but I speak English extremely well. Why do I do that? Because actually I'm from a, from a former British colony. So guess what? Culturally, I'm so close to Australian culture, even from where I come from. So in fact, you wouldn't need to discriminate me against based on my culture because we're very similar, because we both have British or British um, colonial influence, right? What the, all those things happen because of my race. 
So when I say you decolonize, you become anti-racism, and that, that's at the center. I'm not talking about culture. I'm talking about actually recognizing there is such a thing called race. I know we took it out of Australian lexicon, and that, that baffles me why we did that. I don't know why we did that in Australia, because here we are now with a whole generation of people that don't actually know that there is such a thing called race. Um, even though it's a social construct, which means biologically it's not a thing, but socially we know it's a thing. And this thing called race leads to this type of discrimination called racism. And that is as real as anything for some groups of people. And that thing called race and that thing called racism needs to be its own thing, not culture. Because if you use, cult if you use culture as an entry point, you're going to get culture. And you're not going to come to Virginia and you're not going to deal with my problems if you're going through a cultural lens. So when people talk about culturally and linguistically diverse people, I'm like, hmm, please don't call me that. I don't like it. Um, and think about why that term was put into reality in Australia. Like, why did we construct that term? It's because we didn't want to talk about race. We turned this page, we're like, we're multicultural. And I'm, I'm not trying to say multiculturalism is terrible. We should get rid of it, please. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is those two can coexist, anti-racism and multiculturalism. They need to coexist because we need to talk about race and racism. Then you um, know that you're dealing with that aspect of um, um, like that um, diversity dimension as well as culture because culture doesn't always capture. So, and I always also always give an example of my daughter who was born in Australia. Whatever you call Australian in, a, in your psyche, she is it. If you put her behind the wall, and say, hey, how was your day? And she talks about her day. You would not tell that that's a young black woman. And yet when she's walking down the street, she's constantly asked where she's from. In the workplaces she's in, she's constantly asked to spend, to speak for all culled people. And she came to me one day and said, mom, what does culled mean? And I said, oh, what are you talking about? And so she had to explain to me, never had heard of that term. And she was like, why am I culled? Is it because you speak another language? And I'm like, no. So I had to explain to her why she's suddenly called. And she was like, I'm not called. I'm Australian. And I said, yes, I know, but you're black. That's why you're called, right? So for her, culture and linguistic diversity doesn't even capture her experiences. But when you talk about race, she's like, oh, okay, now I get it. So we need to use race and we need to decolonize our structures. We need to be anti-racist directly. You know, and that looks like anything. I can't say it looks like exactly like this because it's obviously contextual. All that you need to do is actually center an analysis of race, put a, a race lens on your struct, on your systems, policies, pr procedures, anything um, that's there. Even in Australia, like, I don't know, like when you look at even the education policies, you know what, what the University of Sydney recently said well, here's what we're doing. When we use this ATAR system and get, um, you know, like, and, and kind of do the cutoffs for our degrees at this level, what we're actually doing is we're not taking into consideration the actual um, 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 inequalities that are in within education. And when you look at the people that are um, actually um, mainly disadvantaged by those inequalities, there's a strong racial element to it because the people that never ever end up getting to Sydney universities, what was their geographical location? Mostly from the Western suburbs. Who is um, like, what type of people racially speaking are mostly in the Western suburbs? They're non-white, right? So it's like, you look at it, you look at everything through a race lens. 
to me, I say race is at the center of everything. Everything else builds off of race. You know, like if you deal with race, you can deal with everything else. But in Australia, we've done the exact opposite. We don't deal with race. We try and deal with everything else and then we go to culture. So you don't even feel comfortable talking about race and that race exists. And doing those audits of policies or workplaces, is that the sort of thing that Diversity Council Australia can support with? We're starting into that and we're building um, some training, everything around that. So yes, we're getting into all of that. And anyone who's listening was a member of DCA um, can kind of go onto our website and it says the kind of work that we're doing in that space. But I'm not here to talk about DCA today. That's right. Yes. Okay. So you've already touched on the impact of colonization and how that still has ramifications today on race interactions. Um, I wanted to ask you what you think also about Australia's migration and asylum seeker policies and how that impacts our race relations in this country. See, this is the thing about even the migration policies, the, the thing that I was talking about that we don't even realise like what's going on with our own policies. So I think what happened with um, Australia in terms of migration policy, because we moved away from the white Australia policy and like in the um, like 19, of the 1970s, or when was it, 1975, when we had the Race Discrimination Act. We're like, look at us, we're good, and we've got this migration policy. It's now race neutral, so we're good, right? But we never actually, because we didn't do any conscious thing to decolonize or to make our own, um, make sure that um, anti-racism is at the core of our, our policies, those same issues that informed the white Australia policy continued to operate even under so-called multicultural policies um, or like multicultural migration policies. So those same um, racial hierarchies that were created um, within the white Australia policy, I know that the white Australia policy was to keep, was to keep out um, non-British and non-white immigrants uh, out of Australia completely. But even though now we're still technically saying, you know, they can come in. Those racial hierarchies, the racial anxieties, everything that existed under the white Australia policy just transferred over because we never really did anything about it. You know about the the Tampa um, thing and that's pretty much became like internationally, like was not the best um, in Australia's history. Um, and I'm trying to be polite. Yeah. Um, but, but really like, what you have then are these policies that um, end up really disadvantaging a certain group of people based on these racial stereotypes. And what happens when those people, uh, quote unquote, come uh, um, you know, or integrate into Australian society? Those racial stereotypes and those racial hierarchies still follow them. So even though we've technically moved away from, not technically, I mean, I guess legally moved away from um the white Australia policy, to me, the issues that informed those, we didn't do anything to them, we didn't address them, and they're still there, and they're still informing our so-called race-neutral policies. I don't see anything um, race-neutral about our policies at all, about our immigration policies. And so they continue to just perpetuate um, what was there before, really. Yeah. So it's not just the absence of racist policies, it's that plus proactively decolonizing and yeah, yeah. anti-racism so, yeah. yeah I always say and I know, know this might like maybe your listeners might listen to this hear this and go oh! but I always say you know like if you're not being deliberately anti-racist if you're not deliberately using a race lens 
to your policies, to anything, you are not being, you're not doing anything for, 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 to end racism. So don't, so, because in Australia, we like to walk around, most of us kind of thinking, you know, I've never told anyone this word. I've never done this directly. I've never done that. Therefore, I'm, I'm an ally and I'm good. And I'm, you know, I'm helping people. It's like, well, no, actually, unless you've done something really deliberately, so you're at best, at best, you're a non-racist and you might as well be racist. Because you're still benefiting from the systems. You're not changing the structures. You're not doing anything. And if you're not doing that deliberately, you might as well be making it like you might as well be racist, really. And I know that that's a terrible thing. Well, not a terrible, but that's a really strong thing to say. But I find when I'm having a genuine conversation with people, they're like, oh, because I say, well, if you're saying your your organization is anti-racist, tell me exactly what it's done. Exactly what it's done, because you, you need to tell me, oh, we looked at this. We looked at these policies. We looked at our hiring policies. And actually, we did this to make it um, racially equitable. We did this. We did that. If you haven't done that, you can't call yourself an anti-racist organization. Right. And it's the same thing with us, with our, uh, our policies. We kind of like went, oh, racism is a bad thing. And we're also missing out it, by this white Australia policy. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And um, uh, it, it happened at the same time that the whole idea of race was being debunked in a, on a, um, an international scale. And we're like, oh, you know, race isn't a good thing. So let's not, just not even talk about it in Australia. It's terrible. We are becoming multicultural and we're good. We didn't do anything about race. So it's like, just because we say we're multicultural doesn't mean we're also like not racist. Those two can absolutely coexist. And I know you're you're heavily into um, intersectionality as well, um, and not just looking at race. You look at gender and many other factors as well. But we don't have time to talk about them all. But I am really interested today in your your views on um, how uh, female gender and race play out in the Australian context. Um, the truth of the matter is, strictly speaking, we don't know. Technically, we don't know. Why? Because we don't know anything about race, let alone anything about intersections of race and gender. We don't know anything about that. And I say technically speaking because of two things. The organization that, I, that I, I'm here representing today, African Women Australia, is doing a lot of research that's really informed by um, an Afrocentric intersectional lens that actually looks at the thing, things like, what does it mean to be a Black African woman in Australia. So it looks at those three things because our black is, blackness is one thing, Africanness is another, and being a woman is another is another thing, however you're defining woman. So we're not being like very binary with the with our definition of of, of woman. So we don't act so that organization is starting to do that. That research has not been published. So I can speak to that and tell you that when 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 you actually put an intersectional lens and look at the the how race and gender play out you, you again you find when this is what i tell people when you talk to black african women um race really informs how they speak and gender amplifies those experiences so whereas people people like to think oh it's about being a woman right and then you happen to be you're a woman really who happens to be black no the thing is i'm a black african woman you can't actually slice any of that really but if you want to address any of that i would say go to my race and then you will go to and then when you go to my race you will find that those same um processes that you use 
to um, go to my race, you can use them to go to my gender, to go to my Africans, to go to my, you know, all of these other things that hang off of that. Um, but really, if you just treat me like a woman, you're going to miss a lot of things. So let me give you an example. In Australia, for example, there's research that's coming out of an organization called, I think it's called Mind Tribes in Melbourne. And they showed that, um, I might be wrong with the organization, but I think, so don't hold me to this. But um, they did research that showed that um, women of color um, actually stay in middle management positions for 10 years longer than white women right? Or anybody else in Australia. So if you actually just use a race lens, sorry, a gender lens to look at this broad category called woman, then you miss out because then it means you're not getting those nuances or those heightened um, experiences of discrimination by other groups of women who actually, uh, they're not, they're, they're not, not like woman isn't woman isn't woman, essentially is what I'm trying to say. Um, because there's those there's differences. Research out of the U.S. shows, for example, that um, women as a broad category earn like a woman as a broad category will take will earn is it eighty three or something percent, um, or oh, sorry eighty three cents out of every white man's dollar, right? Something like that. I mean, don't quote me very much on these stats because I'm talking off the top of my head. Um, but when you look at when you unpack that, um, like Hispanic women are fifty something cents. African-American women are six, I think like 64 cents. And then white women is 79 cents, right? So it's like, you look at it, so they, they, they're the ones that are closest to the average. So really when you use, oh, it's 83%, you're missing like a whole 30 something cents that black women are under or nearly 40 cents that um, um, Hispanic women are under. So it's like kind of like, that. that's how race and gender interact to amplify dis, um, experiences of discrimination. So in Australia, we don't have anything like that. We don't know anything like that because first of all, we, we have very, very scanty race literature. We have a lot of stuff that talks, that's very descriptive of, about cult, cult, cult. But I always say to people, I don't know what cult is because technically someone who's, who's come, who's a, who's a migrant who's come from, um, um, I don't know, who's come from German, right? They're called, right? Yeah, they? yeah they, they, they fall be. under that term. Right. But then when it comes to race, that person is unlikely to experience race-based discrimination, right? But they will experience, they might experience some other types of discrimination that are based on geography, that are based on migration, but not racism. And so because when we walk down the street, that person, no one's going to ask, ask them where they're from. When we go into... into um, and um, into, into an interview, people are likely to say, oh, so you're from Germany, tell me about this. And they're likely to be interested. They're likely to do something else. Whereas, so they already have a certain level of, um, you know, already like of, of kind of acceptance when they walk in. Whereas Virginia walks in, I have to fight to get to that level. I have to prove myself to get to that level just on the basis of my race. So put people as a cult, as a group, and you give statistics about cult as a group to me as Virginia I was a race scholar I'm like I don't know what that means no. well as you know the term is used so widely in in the education sector by NGOs are there the terms that are more fitting well I mean in Australia we don't have other terms that are more fitting to be honest um I know that at DCA we're moving away from that um 
called to what we're calling CAM, C-A-R-M, uh, culturally and racially marginalized people or groups. Now, we... Um, we we have re- research that's actually showing very strong support of that term, how and so we haven't released that yet. But my my and so we it, there's mixed um kind of people who um are cautious about that are qu- cautious because of the term marginalization because oh marginalization is too strong a word. Well, really, when you don't give someone a job because of their race, what are you doing? Marginalizing. So marginalization isn't a, a personal identity or an individual identity. It's a description of the processes and the structures that create that those hierarchies or those racial hierarchies. So for me, really, that term is very fitting. And I've noticed even in the U.S., they're also moving towards, they, they're, using, they're calling them um, racially and ethnically marginalized groups. So they use the word ethnic. Um, so um, what is it, this... Um, there was an article that was released recently by um, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the um, I'm having a mental blank, but that that's moved away from talking about black um, and Hispanic or black and white kind of the you know the U.S. language, and they moving more towards uh, racially and um, ethnically marginalized groups. So. To me, that's a term that's that's. It's, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not trying to get people to use it, but I'm think, saying terms like that that actually acknowledge a the marginalization or the discrimination aspect, and that recognize the race aspect would be would be more preferable. And have have any of these researchers have been able to talk to people who would fall under that category to see how they feel about um, having that label that has some negative connotations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the negative connotations, they're not from, this is the thing too, like they're not from the people themselves. The negative connotations are the people who we call racially privileged. They're the ones that are more uncomfortable with it because they're the ones that are like, oh, I'm not, you know, like, but we're not marginalizing nobody. It's like, well, yeah, you are, first of all. But secondly, when even the people that have the, that, that are in those groups themselves are feeling uncomfortable. It's because of the consequences of being called marginalized by the, you know what I mean? So it's kind of really all still circles back to mm, the people. There's who nothing are, inherently about them. It's the society they're yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. And for them as well, it's, it's because they're thinking marginalization is an identity. Because they're like, oh, yeah, I know this is, the processes do that to me, but I myself am not marginalized. Well, actually, we're not talking about you being a marginalized you know, like as, a, as an identity for you. We're talking about it as the processes because I am yet to come across any person of color in any research that I've used that will not agree to the fact that they are marginalizing processes and that they're on the receiving end of racially marginalizing processes. So like I said, we're not saying the term is perfect. Maybe it's not, but it's a ter- term that we're, that was kind of saying, look, cult is, it's outdated. Like it's, it, it's, it's to me anyway, like, and I know that some people might not agree with this. I think if it was useful at all, it's outlived its utility. And there's lots of academic literature really being very critical about this term. And, and maybe we need to keep it and redefine it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not here to like really be very prescriptive about anything i'm just getting people to really kind of think a bit oh, exactly. about and that what... is what we love yeah just 
being like I've never heard this um, opinion before, so it's just really interesting to have a chat about it. Yeah, it's really good. Um, in your opinion, um, how can educators play a role in challenging structural racism in schools? Anti-racism. I know it sounds like a broken record. Let's hear it again. <laughs> someone said to me you don't sound like a broken record you're emphasizing I'm like okay so maybe that's what I'm doing now um but really honestly um education systems are where some of the the most um the harshest inequalities actually lie so let me tell you again a personal story I like to I'm an I'm a narrative researcher so I like telling stories and in the forum like this I like telling stories about my life because then, I mean, it's okay for you to print them or, you know, publish them or whatever. But my daughter, when she went to school, um, the curriculum had a, a very different way of portraying um, First Nations history and First Nations people. And I remember when she went to university and started her degree and had to do an assignment on um, in, her, in her Indigenous Studies uh, class, and they were learning all these things. She came home and she was pretty much crying and screaming and said, why were we never told these things in school? This is not what, because I remember one time she came to me and uh, with her assignment in school and I said, this is not it. This is not it. The way I teach this in, in university is this, this. And she said, no, 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 no. This is what we're told in school. And she wrote the assignment, got a good grade, fine. But at the end of the day, when she went to university, then the information and now the, the subjects are being taught by First Nations lecturers with, with the First Nations um, team of teaching assistants, et cetera, et cetera. The narrative is different. It changes, right? And she came home. She was so disappointed. She said, Mom, how, how come I didn't know this? How come we don't know this information? Um, all we know is that uh, First Nations people create more crime. They don't, Mom, do they? And I said, no, because they were now being told of those inequalities in crime statistics and they were looking at it through a racial lens and you realize actually numbers don't tell the story. There's a story behind the numbers and she was learning about those stories behind the numbers and she was so upset by it, very upset by it. So this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. The education system needs to do better. Like really that racial lens to in our education system is very, very important. So it's this, the system itself, the structures, but there's also the people in it that are delivering the, the things. So those two work hand in hand. So we need to decolonize the structures, yes, but we also need to decolonize ourselves. So one of the things that I say um, as well in my um, teaching has always been this, this big thing about um, even as an educator, look at what you're reading yourself. What are you reading? How are you creating your knowledge, whether it's about anything at all? How are you creating that knowledge? And if your knowledge is coming from, you know, white middle class men all the time or white or white women or whatever, and there's no diversity even in the way that you're getting your knowledge, then what do you think you're reproducing when you go on to teach? So even even something that basic of like looking at yourself and actually doing that racial audit of your own knowledge, how you're creating your knowledge as an educator is very, very important. Thanks, Virginia. Some really good ideas there that I think will be taken up by our listeners. And Rafiq, I know um, this is an area that you've done a lot of thinking, reading and practicing. Is there anything you'd like to add to um, how educators can challenge structural racism? 
Yeah, so um, so many things that uh, Virginia said really resonate with me. Um, you know, but um, to, just thinking of um, uh, of schools, just expanding on what Virginia said, um, exactly what you know she said there about if you you know we're talking about if we're talking about structural racism, we're talking about a situation that what did Virginia described where um, the people who are in charge believed they had a right to be in charge believe they were, you know, the, the, the beliefs at the time were evolving, but some of the beliefs that underpinned the Australian nation were fundamentally about the white people, this new British, um, the gen- this new generation of the British Empire that would, would ascend in Australia and show the world what, you know, what, um, what superiority the British race could produce through its children in Australia. So there was an empire project. There was this talk about this new um, outpost in Asia. So all of those sort of ideas um, sometimes are still filtered down in people's consciousness, but they're not very aware of it. So, you know, the assumption is that, um, you know, like an Aboriginal um, academic says, Australia is a white possession. I remember when I read that, how that played out in every conversation I would have when I was doing um, some anti-racism work uh, for, for Fairfield Council and the Premier's Department in Cabramatta in 2000s, um, that the assumptions behind what people said was that white people owned Australia and were in charge and decided on every other group and how they should behave, right? And then, you know, the issues of association of crime with non-white people with, you know, visible different bodies, you know, black bodies, brown bodies, Asian bodies, that kind of thing. So those those things we've inherited from, the, you know, the British Empire, the colonies, and then the formation of Australian states and immigration laws that were designed to keep people out. But in terms of schooling, I think um, in a very – I don't think people are malevolent but these things play out in the way they think, you know, because schools are, are places where you reproduce the nation's goals and culture, right? And so from the top, from the curriculum and, you know, the last, since the Howagies, there's been this focus on a national curriculum that puts the British story at the centre again. So there's one story that represents everyone's story and this kind of, um, you know, this push from academics to include stories of First Nation people and the research and what we know about Aboriginal people. And there's always been this tension, and you see that tension playing out in schools, not just in the curriculum, but even in the classroom, you have people who still feel um, all of that stuff that Virginia's talked to about, you know, uncomfortable with the word white. Australians feel the saying the word white is racist to some people, you know. They just think the fact that you identify that is racist. And this, again, it comes from this kind of unresolved shame from the past and denial about, you know, the bad things that have happened and a kind of foregrounding the good things, which means the story of nation-making from a British perspective. And so all of that plays out. And then at the individual level of the teacher, the fact that people become invisible because their stories aren't shared in the classroom. And that starts from preschool. 
it, so it, it, if that if that room includes everyone, and and you know, I'm not even um, going into the areas that Virginia specialises in, like intersectionality, like you know, even girls' stories, and and the stories of everyone in that room, in the curriculum, so they're visible, they're not denied, they're not made invisible. If they're acknowledged, if they're welcomed and included, then what you're doing in school is building an awareness of each other and a commonality and children begin to think of us. You know, they can learn about difference and they can learn about being children in the same place who share all the same resources. So I think schools are fundamental to building children's capacity to see. If you're, if you're making kids invisible and making their worlds invisible, their life worlds invisible, whatever that looks like, you know, the realities they have, children begin also to self-censor. They know not to bring things into that space. So I think all of us, like, you know, what's profound about schooling is that the same experiences that I had in the 70s, early 70s in schooling in Australia, and it was a very different Australia, really, like, you know, in the school I was in, I was called Blackie, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, North African. My skin isn't black, but I was called Blackie. That's how different, or that's the reference point that children had, that they knew the difference was black and white. And so because I wasn't white, I was therefore black, right? That's the difference that children were able to identify. And that was the referencing I got as a child, and it was a negative referencing. I could tell that there was something bad about this, and it played out in very um, – you know, I can. I still remember, like, there'd be a circle around me when we'd sit on the mat because kids didn't want to catch something from the black kid and I wouldn't be able to play, um, you know, some of the games that the kids would play because I was black and it was referenced all the time in my childhood, the word black. And if I was to show you my school picture, you can see the visible difference. All the kids are white and freckled and red-haired and blonde-haired and I'm the only kid there was a bit of a tinge in his colour in that school. Now, those experiences and the experiences of teachers scrutinising me made me associate myself in primary school with bad behaviour because I was always sticking out. And that's, again, that, you know, it plays from the original historical frameworks that built this nation and people were on the lookout of Aboriginal people. They had to be in reserves. They couldn't be walking in, in, in public areas. And then with immigration policies, this focus on assimilating brown people or people who spoke a different language but were still white, it was everyone's job to teach them how to be good Australians. That was the social policy. And the focus on language, not to speak your language in public spaces, you know, the focus on um, crime being associated with, you know, Chinese and the gold rushes and so on and disease, all of those things somehow are still present and come out every now and then. And, and as a child in school, I watch young people today, you know, so I've seen young people in schools experience the same singling out. And this, the country's changed. And people won't say that white people are superior. You won't get teachers saying that. But at the same time, this focus on assimilating black kids from Congo, making them fit in, you know, and not dealing with their um, reports of racism. So that focus, again, on just assimilating people, it's, it's 
deep down, it's so um, deeply rooted in the culture, just like um, Virginia identified all of those things and we see it play out. And, and it, you know, it's at the micro level of the classroom, what you choose, which stories you choose, um, which voices you make heard. And at the macro level, in terms of um, how do you um, position resources or the needs of people in your school that are racially different? You know, so New South Wales has done this amazing, you know, the, the, some people in the department have, have developed this amazing anti-racism policy. And I would ask, um, what would be the decision about how much training people get? Like, what do you devote? How much time do you devote to something like anti-racism? Do you devote a month, a week, an hour? You know, what, what do people do with these things? How often do you revisit it? And we're just only beginning. I think um, all of those things Virginia said, um, you know, an organisation like Starts is so inclusive and focused on the needs of people arriving in the country from experiences of being refugees. And we're just beginning to talk about racial literacy and um and racial assessment, uh, you know. So I think, yeah, um, it's like what Virginia said, race is, I, I see race in everything uh, as well, and that's problematic. You try to, to balance yourself because, you know, it, I, as Virginia talks, I feel all the same kind of um, um, emotions, I think, because, um, yeah, you, it's overwhelming it becomes overwhelming. If you work in anti-racism, it becomes overwhelming because you see the darkness and you see the cracks. And so you need to kind of step back. And I think a profound pain is that I believed when my, you know, my, my son and my daughter would go to school, that they would be free from the racial gaze or from racial violence. Um, my son looks quite Aboriginal. He's very dark and he gets mistaken for an Aboriginal young man often. And he's not out in public that often, but the exposure he's had just is, you know, exactly what I guess I saw working in, in the field, you know, in Cabramatta, um, the scrutiny, um, the, the experiences at school of perhaps harsh punishment without really understanding uh, what, what that young man is but just from the appearance and uh he's gone a very different way you know pe people like myself and perhaps virginia we've really had to soften our um racial differences to survive we've had to adopt adopt as much of a british heritage kind of way of talking thinking presenting to get past he's gone the opposite way which i'm happy with he's embraced this kind of I guess they they embrace an identity that's represented, you know, by black people in the states uh, as something that they want to give meaning to themselves because they can't do that on their own, and and racism in schools is extremely significant for the development uh, of identity and of um, if people don't have protective factors of racial trauma, so schools are paramount in kind of the impacts of structural racism in the long term. Thank you, Rafiq. And thank you to both of you for sharing uh, parts of your own stories to, to make these concepts we're talking about so, so real and um, so felt.
Um, and also both for, for touching on anti-racist actions that individuals can take, teachers can take, and also um, alluding to the changes that need to happen on institutional and structural levels as well. Um, it's been such a thought-provoking um, interview for me, um, just challenge some long-held assumptions that I've had myself as well. So I'd like to thank you both um, and, yeah, really appreciate you coming on today. I took away so much from this interview, and I hope that, like me, you appreciated the directness in the way that Virginia and Rafiq spoke. There was a real urgency in their voices in the way they underlined that political correctness and well-meaning celebration of multiculturalism doesn't go anywhere near far enough to address structural racism and the widening political, social, health and economic gaps that result from it. And they pressured the point that policies, systems and structures cannot claim to be race neutral if they haven't actively been audited through a racial lens to see where racial inequalities and stereotypes are embedded and perpetuated. I also really appreciated Virginia pulling apart race and culture and showing us how different they are and how real race is, despite the non-existence of biogenetic differences between races. Her message was that multiculturalism needs to be paired with anti-racism to make room for decolonization and racial harmony. And for that to occur, Australians need to get comfortable talking about race and not just culture, because adults and children are being judged, stereotyped and discriminated against based on their race before they've even had a chance to reveal anything about their culture. Rafiq then highlighted how when a child is repeatedly subject to negative attention due to some physical attribute they cannot control, the negative judgment can eventually become internalised. While structural racism is difficult for individuals to address on their own, I was grateful that Virginia pointed out that each one of us can do our own decolonising audits by looking at the media we consume. In other words, what are the ideas, assumptions, stereotypes and biases that we feed our mind with? Who has created the books, films and news we consume? And are those creators as diverse as the children and families we work with?